Peace, the Defence Secretary hosts a conference in London. Trump and Clinton under pressure in front of a military audience. We have to defeat ISIS. I may love what the generals come back with. I will continue. But you have your own plan. I have a plan. But could Russia be interfering with the whole process of electing a new president? major UN peacekeeping conference is underway in London. It's hosted by Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon, who's already confirmed a 100 more British troops will join the UN mission in South Sudan. In his opening remarks, he pledged Britain would do even more to help. We will go further and build a permanent facility there that will allow all future force providers in that part of South Sudan to benefit from an established facility. That's a key capability, and we don't take decisions like that lightly, particularly where there is so much demand. Well, let's talk to BFBS reporter James Hurst, who's at that conference. James, hello. Who else is there? Uh, We have ministers and senior representatives from nearly 80 countries taking part, and, uh, of course, Michael Fallon hosting, but uh, co-host countries include Bangladesh, Ethiopia, the Netherlands, the United States. It's a broad range. On the other hand, uh, fewer than half of UN member states are represented here. It is, though, I think it'll be seen as improvement. There were 52 at the first such conference a year ago. Uh, Institutions here, NATO represented as well as the UN, and Angelina Jolie is here. What are they hoping to achieve? Uh, It is about, well, you look at the, 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 the hashtag, better peacekeeping. That is what it is about. It is also about putting more effort into peacekeeping. So the reason Angelina Jolie is here is uh, at lunchtime she made a, a very powerful appeal for more women to be involved in peacekeeping. Of course, we know her campaigning on sexual violence in conflict and ending that. And she says, you know, this is central to that. It's about gaining the trust, engaging with local populations, increasing numbers of peacekeepers alone, she says, won't work. You need new ways of working with uh, women at the heart. And there's similar messages coming from people like Sir Michael Fallon from the leadership of the UN. But they also want uh, improvements uh, in planning. So at the top level of the United Nations, as well as performance on the ground, they want to improve planning. Um, Essentially, we are, you know, while we're hearing uh, messages about good work that's been done about uh, what was achieved at the last conference there is acknowledgement that you know there have been some Mm. serious failings by un peacekeepers and they want to try and eliminate those from the system i mean james only a few weeks ago on sitrep we were talking about un's peacekeepers in south sudan being asked for help and not actually doing anything when people were being attacked you talk about better peacekeeping at this conference what kind of things are we talking about uh, I mean, I think they will want to look at, you know, things like uh, planning for that situation. You know, they, they have specific mandates and quite quite often you know, the UN troops, and it's not actually just the UN, NATO have found itself in, in similar situations where um, the, you know, the, the, they're not sure if 
a certain situation is within their mandate. But, you know, you, we hear Michael, Sir Michael Fallon talking about people needing the, the moral courage to step up. Um, it, it is at all levels. And I think what they really want to do is try and ensure that, that things can't slip between gaps, as uh, sometimes has been given in an explanation in the past. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Christopher. Okay, look, let, let's get this in some big perspective. The Malik, the Malik plan for revised peacekeeping goes like this: um, Who pays for peacekeepers? Um, who goes and who gets there? Um, where does the equipment come from? Quite often, you say, right, I will send, let's say, two hundred guys from a the country. They can't get there. They've got no aeroplane to take them there. Some have actually had to be provided with weapons. And then you mentioned the case in South Sudan when uh, the UN peacekeepers didn't go to the help of uh, of some women there. Here is another point, which is on the Malik plan. They have to revise, and who says what is the rules of engagement, the terms of reference. And also the reference to the host country, because peacekeepers are in there courtesy of the host country. So who pays, who gets mm. them there, who commands them, and most importantly, are rules of engagement. You cannot do the, it at this conference. This conference is a showpiece, nothing more, all go home. So that, that said, what Christopher just said, James, do you, do you think there will be any announcements coming out of the conference? Oh, we will hear, as, I mean, as Christopher says, in the, you, you can't directly achieve anything at this conference. What they are looking to do is issue a, a communique about uh, making improvements, committing to uh, more women, to uh, eliminating uh, issues of abuses by United Nations troops, to improving training. But it will be words, and but it's a question of how many sign up to that, and then actually that then gives them perhaps the leverage to start putting pressure on at various levels, including in the UN building in New York, to start delivering on it. All right, James Hurst, I'll let you back, get back to that conference. So thank you very much. Christopher, um, not the only uh, series of meetings and talks that have gone on in London this week. We have UN ministers who've been meeting talking about Syria in London. Yeah. By the way, Angelique Jolly, uh, James was saying, is there, and she's saying more women. There's a group of women supposed to be going in September to southern Sudan through the United Nations, but they can't be protected, so they're not going. She mm. ought to get and sort that out instead of going to conferences. <laughs> I, I hope yeah, she's the, listening to you, Christopher. <laughs> she doesn't normally. No. Listen, the, what's happening at the moment is, is, is something which was quite dramatic, as not foreseen. The United Nations Pentagon, the military... And the United Nations State Department, the you know the Boris Johnson affair in Washington, uh, are not talking to each other, but they're going to start wrangling with each other. The this, is a, this is you're saying is, is over Syria. Yeah, it's all over Syria. The Pentagon is being frustrated. They're saying that uh, Jack Kerry, the uh, the Secretary of State. Uh, he just talks and talks and talks. There's been 415 meetings since this thing started, and this is absolutely crazy, and nothing's been so achieved. So it's the U.S.-Russia relations in the whole thing? It's U.S.-Russian relations, and it's also the Pentagon's relations with, with the State Department. Mm. In other words, the Obama camp has not got a proper programme, and it's all about Syria. So Let me give you just a couple of things that they're, they're, they're throwing up against the State Department at the moment. And they're saying, look, get the following. There's a thing called double tapping. 
and that's when you look at a target, hit it, and then where they go the ca- casualties, you then hit where the casualties have gone, like the, the hospitals. This is happening every 17 hours at the moment, say the Pentagon, in Syria, in Aleppo, precisely, uh, as the Russians and the Syrians are hitting hospitals. They've now targeted solely, solely hospitals. We've now got to the states where, there, where there's <coughs> only 35 uh, doctors, or mm-hmm. medics rather, that can deal with the whole of Aleppo. And the State Department is saying, well, we'll discuss this. The Pentagon's saying, look, we can actually team up with the Turks and we can actually do yeah, something so, about so it. So this, this is one thing that's going on um, in the background, which is of huge significance. But also we have these, these, these peace talks that are going on that have taken place in London, where they're hailing it as being some kind of progress five years on from the conflict beginning. And we have President Assad on the other side rejecting all of this as a load of rubbish. <laughs> it's all based on the fact they're saying, you know, we can put this in place, can't we? And everybody says, yeah, we can put it in place. Of course, President Assad will have to go. And Bashar Assad says, go where? And why? And how? No way. I'm not going. I'm winning. And if you don't believe I'm winning, look at some of those figures that they're doing now for Aleppo. Aleppo is the biggest, the biggest rubble heap in the whole of Syria. It's the biggest town. And Bashar Assad said, I don't have any problems. What the Pentagon is saying... He would have problems if we started targeting downtown Damascus. And that would revolutionise the whole, not just the war, but the whole of, 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 of so Obama's Ameri- policy, which he ain't going to do. If the Americans amongst themselves can't really agree how to deal with Russia in all of this, um, there's not a lot of hope, is there, really? No, there isn't a lot of hope, and that's the whole, that's the whole problem. We talk, you know, we, we talk about these meetings, we say, oh, we'll get some, get some statement out of it, which, and we might get a 40-hour... 48-hour ceasefire next week. We're talking now of a policy of both Russia and uh, Damascus and Washington that will continue this war on this way, on this footing, in terms of years, not weeks. Still to come is Russia planning on disrupting the American presidential elections. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have faced questions in front of a military audience on who is best placed to be America's next commander-in-chief. Both promised to defeat Islamic State militants. Simon Marks from Feature Story News was watching the event on US TV network NBC. Hello, Simon. Um, Hello, Kate. They weren't on stage at the same time, though, were they? They were not on stage at the same time. Indeed, they didn't interact at all. These were back-to-back interviews conducted by NBC's host, Matt Lauer. Uh, There was a coin toss that Donald Trump won and perhaps sensibly decided that he would put Hillary Clinton into the lion's den first. So she was the first to appear. She was up for about 25 minutes. Uh, Then there was a break and then Donald Trump came out. And while they never interacted on the stage together, there were similarities between the presentation that they put across. Both of them vowed to defeat Islamic State if they are elected, but neither of them explained precisely how they will go about doing that. Donald Trump, remember, has said that if he becomes president, within 30 days he'll ask his generals and his top military advisers to come up with a plan. So it was put to him that, in fact, his plan is to win the election and then formulate a plan. If I like maybe a combination of my plan and the general's plan, or the general's plan, if I like their plan, Matt, I'm not going to 
to call you up and say, Matt, we have a great plan. This is what Obama does. He says that he's being cunning by not revealing his plans at this point, but he insists that he does actually have some idea of how he will go about the task of uh, defeating Islamic State. Hillary Clinton, for her part, well, she was more focused on telling the audience what she's not going to do rather than what she is going to do. We are not putting ground troops into Iraq ever again. And we're not putting ground troops into Syria. We're going to defeat ISIS without committing American ground troops. And she says she's going to bring about the defeat of ISIS through an intelligence surge. But Hillary Clinton has never explained on the campaign trail why, if an intelligence surge is possible, it hasn't surged yet. So, Simon, how did they do? Well, I think it was a very mixed performance by both of them. I mean, Hillary Clinton got off to a really bad start because for the first 10 minutes she was peppered with questions about her use uh, of an email, a private email account, when she was Secretary of State, uh, which is not something that she wants to talk about, and indeed she's avoided those questions largely uh, for most of the last year. Mm. Uh, So she kind of got caught up in the mire of that. Donald Trump came out and was not challenged by the moderator when he claimed that he had been against the war in Iraq. Uh, In fact, the evidence suggests that he supported the war in Iraq at the time when uh, President Obama uh, and uh, George W. Bush before him took the decision to engage militarily in Iraq and then uh, maintain troops there during the beginning of the Obama presidency. But I think overall, uh, Donald Trump had an easier time of it than Hillary Clinton, and it wasn't a format that particularly worked for her. Yeah, you say he had an easier time. Uh, He did come out with a few interesting remarks about the the military talking about American generals being reduced to rubble, reduced to a point where it's embarrassing to our country under the Obama administration. How did all of that go down? Well, I think a mixed uh, reception by the members of the military that were in the audience. He never really explained what he meant by generals being reduced to rubble, although he appeared to be suggesting that they were ignored by President Obama, that they'd been sidelined. These are the same generals, remember, that he's going to have to rely on if he's President of the United States for military advice, although uh, he appeared to think that he might be in a position to replace them should he become President uh, of the United States next year. There was no real cohesion uh, to many of the policy ideas that Donald Trump was putting across. But remember, Kate, that earlier in the day, he had laid out plans for a big military build-up, a standing army, 540,000 strong. That would involve the recruitment of an additional 50,000 troops, uh, a modernization program for the country's uh, naval cruisers. That would cost $77 billion, according to some estimates here. Uh, The deployment of a missile defense system. He says he's going to pay for that Uh, through uh, cutting government waste and he says it will be a jobs boon for the United States. He hopes that that is going to play well with military families and also, of course, with the companies that Mm. do so much business in the military sector. Christopher, um, of how much interest is this kind of questioning in front of a military audience to our military audience here in the UK? I don't suppose it's in much interest at all. But it's very, very really important. Really? Not, not at all? Not no, a- no, because um, I think that we are now looking quite differently in terms of where the relationship, the military relationship is with uh, the United States. Until it settles down into the reality, uh, it doesn't matter who gets the job as president, uh, it can, you can have, um, uh, you can have uh, Mrs. Clinton 
uh, who I, I think, Simon, didn't she say we're not going to have troops in Iraq or troops on the ground in Iraq? She did. Yes, and, never it, again, and indeed she said, said yeah. ever, never mm-hmm. going to have yeah, troops, well, there are them, four, which is a heck of a hostage to fortune. That's right. There are four divisions of them at the moment. Exactly. And there's no way they're going to be pulled out. And if they're going to even defend American interests, they've actually got to, got to keep them there. i tell you what is important is the United States, something like 13%, probably a wrong figure, 13% of the vote is either vets or people like vets. Mm. And that military vote, especially the old guys, the old and bold, is very, very important. And I think that perhaps uh, uh, Trump appeals to them, uh, appeals to them even more. And the thing about, I'm going to talk to the generals, we were talking just a few minutes ago about the generals getting really fed up with the State Department, and they say, look, you're, you're compromising us in, in the Middle East. That's exactly the sort of thing that the generals okay. want to hear that Trump's coming up All with. Right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Simon Marks from Feature Story News. Thank you for your time today. Now, could Russia be plotting to disrupt the US pre- presidential elections? US security chiefs are investigating a covert Russian operation to sow distrust in the electoral system itself. Well, Dana Priest is an investigative writer for the Washington Post and has been writing about all of this. Good to speak to you today, Dana. W- what is it that security chiefs believe Russia is doing exactly well nice to be here they believe that they're that uh, russia's doing what they've been doing in europe for several years but now they're doing it here and that is to fool around with the election system in the way that you can electronically and, and in other ways enough just enough to sow distrust in the results and so you've already seen them hack into the dnc the democratic national committee files uh emails and what I did is report on a broader Russian influence operation that the U.S. intelligence services and law enforcement here believe exists now on the part of the Russians in the United States, which includes, but not as exclusive to, it includes uh, this idea of tampering with U.S. elections for mm. the first time. Dana, why? You know, it's really a template that was... Um, that has been taken in Europe, which is to sow distrust among the public to their institutions, to weaken um, the political systems, to give an advantage ultimately to Putin in his interest, uh, you know, around the world. And if there's less public trust and confidence in whoever gets voted into president, that means that their measures that are bound to be controversial around the world and that involve Russia might also have less um, of a consensus from the American public. So I think they're still working on intent. You know, it could be others have said it's to show how powerful he is, given his weak economy and actual lack of power, but is able to reach across and, and do these sorts of things. And others have said it's revenge. It's revenge for what uh, Putin believes is U.S. meddling in Russia's affairs. So how serious? So it's the whole range. How seriously is this threat being taken? Well, I think it's being taken very seriously by both the domestic agencies here, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, who have sent out alerts to election monitors, uh, rather election officials. The problem in the United States is we have a very decentralized election system. It's up to the local authorities, the state and county, to run their own election uh, balloting vote 
and because of that, it's um, you know it's not one type of technology. Most of it is disconnected from the web, from the internet. But there are other ways that uh, it can be fooled with, and not all of it is disconnected from mm. the internet. There's a lot of paper balloting, but it's not uh, universal, and not everybody backs up electronic. Uh, voting with paper, although that is what is being recommended now. All right, Dana Priest, it's good to speak to you. Thank you for your time today. That's Dana Priest from the Washington Post. Uh, Christopher? Yeah. How much did it go on? uh, Well, I'll tell you one of the things that uh, we we shouldn't forget. Uh, The old KGB, now the uh, face of a, one of its largest or most important contingents um, in the so-called Cold War period was its operation, the KGB operation in Northern Ireland. And it went not simply on the mili- what was going on militarily, but what was going on during the sectarian groups. Now, one of the things that they're doing in America at the moment, they are targeting certain areas, say, say a town or a city, but more likely a large town, and say, if we could disrupt the electoral system, forget the, the votes, we therefore instill a sense of, not despondency, but say, oh, we're not as good as we think we are. And and people start having doubts about the whole system. And when they have doubts about the whole system, that's how you start to vote. And if you look at the debate, for example, about Trump, why has he got uh, such big majorities in different parts of America, not all America, different parts of America, you see, look at those those parts of America where we believe that Trump, there is an angry part of America. Mm. That's where the intelligence people are operating at the moment, especially on cyber, when you can get something, come up on your screen and say, are you really thinking about this man? You're not really going to vote for him, are you? And down it goes. Now this week, a florist in Cheshire discovered that a picture of him selling flowers from his stall had featured in a magazine published by Islamic terrorist group IS. 64-year-old Stephen Leyland was interviewed by counter-terrorism police after the picture was featured in Rumia, an English-language magazine aimed at inciting extreme violence in the West. The photo was used to illustrate how ordinary people are fair game when it comes to potential targets in terror attacks. Well, Charles Winter is Associate Fellow at the International Centre for Counterterrorism at The Hague, and he joins us now. Good to speak to you, Charlie. Um, you've been monitoring IS media output for some time. What do you make of this latest magazine? I have this latest magazine, I think it's very interesting. It's uh, kind of like a, a streamlined version of much of what we've seen in the past, and it actually draws together a lot of the Arabic written media that we see. Uh, it's a, Based a lot of it is based on translations of articles that have appeared in the last few months in IS's newspaper. In terms of the overall message, it stays pretty close to the the IS brand. Uh, it recognises the the group's abhorrence for civilian life and really drives that very deep into the ground. It, it's one of the fundamental takeaways of, of Rumia. Uh, but I think also it does focus on the civilian aspect of life in, in IS as well, looks at um, the Central Office for Grievances, which is a, a peculiar article in which the emir of that office is, is asked about his job, what he does, how he makes sure that the IS government is accountable to its citizens, etc., things like that. So taking those two points as the, the, the key themes to emerge from it, civilian and martial life, it doesn't depart that much from it, but it's very interesting because of the structure and the format. The fact that it was released in 
uh, a number of different languages simultaneously as well. It shows that IS is trying to streamline its efforts, trying to really bring the media centralization that it's been working on for, for years now uh, right closer to a, a, a point where it can really have a unified brand regardless of what language it's, yeah, it's you say a unified you say a unified brand what's happened to the main is magazine dabig it hasn't been seen for a while i understand so the last issue of dabig was a few weeks ago now uh, i think it came out end of july beginning of august the nature of romeo to me suggests that dabig is no more because romeo includes some of the article structures that, that Darbeck would have. And it would be strange if they were to keep them both going um, and, and ha- have them kind of cross-pollinating each other. Now, there are many different reasons for, for why Darbeck might go or whether its role is going to change. But I think while we're in the realm of speculation, uh, I think it's important to recognize that Darbeck not being released for a few months doesn't mean that Darbeck won't come back. Mm. I mean, there could be another issue in, in three or four years and it would just be a continuation of the, the, the message that's being sent by that magazine. Obviously, Charlie, the I ca- do... sorry, I was going to, sorry to interrupt you. I understand that, the, you know, counter-terrorism police are taking this kind of publication seriously if they're going to visit people like Stephen Leyland. Um, what do you know about the way the publications are actually circulated and how much influence they have? Measuring the influence of a piece of propaganda like this is very, very difficult indeed. One thing that you can do is look at how well it's received in the jihadi community. Now, I spend most of my time looking at uh, what people are saying in Arabic, what the hardcore of IS supporters are doing on the Internet, what they're talking about, what kind of propaganda they're exchanging between themselves. Um, So when faced with an English-language piece of propaganda like this, you can actually see whether it's something... you, You can kind of gauge its relative value to IS supporters by seeing if they'll circulate it, even if they have no chance of understanding it. Mm. And this is exactly what's been happening with Ramir. Exactly the same thing happens with other uh, pieces of propaganda made by the Al-Hayat Media Center. Mm. In terms of the um, way it's circulated, as always, it follows the, the very particular methodology that IS uses to get, get its propaganda to the internet, which involves a mixture of closed sources, open sources, and a constant kind of trickle-down effect. Uh, In terms of it it's reaching a mass audience, though, I think because of the way that the the landscape, the social media landscape has evolved over the last few months and years, for example, Twitter Mm. is very inhospitable for IS propaganda now, it has necessarily reached a much smaller audience. Mm. Christopher, what do you make of all of this? If you go back to what the British Army was doing... Uh, when it started in the Intelligence Corps with its uh, propaganda sheets and also examining what other people were doing. It was first at Ashford and then they went to Chicksands. Um, They decided that one of the most important targets for these were the people who we would say the IS members themselves because it reflected not just the propaganda as we would normally accept it but reflected the need to boost then the pirate individuals, but now, say, IS members or people who are sympathetic mm. towards them. And I think that value is very difficult uh, uh, to, to judge how effective it is. But it was important when social media took over, and so you've got things on, on phones and iPhones, mm. etc., that people, they felt, still wanted to see it in print, and print became very, very, and still is very important to the propagandist. And there we'll leave it for the moment. Charlie Winter, thank you very much for your time today.
HMS Daring is in Gibraltar for routine reprovisioning as it prepares to deploy to the Gulf. It's the UK's latest contribution to the campaign against the Islamic terror group IS. The destroyer and her 190-strong crew sailed from Portsmouth on Friday. Christopher, update us. Great stuff, actually. Um, if you'd have gone back... That's great. If you'd gone back a month... I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> You're listening. You go back. You go back a month, and there was Daring, there was Diamond... HMS Diamond, which is going to be standing off the Libyan coast, tied up alongside another four of the class, waiting to get, to get fixed. Do you remember the, the engines wouldn't work? That. They didn't like the weather or something mm-hmm. like that. Daring is the is the uh, is the is the class ship uh, 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 of the whole lot. What is important is it is the United Kingdom is doing an air defence uh, version in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, uh, air defence communications, etc., and coordinating that in a sort of a large military role. Diamond, uh, along, with, uh, a- along with an RFA, is going to be off the Libyan coast. And this is a refugee operation, mm. and it's been outstanding for two years. They should have done it. The biggest problem is how can they coordinate with the other navies, especially the Italians, that are mm. also working in the area. And that's the only weakness in it. Now, while we're talking about ships, very briefly, announcement from the Defence Secretary that on the new HMS Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier, she would have American planes. Yes, which is always going to have American planes. Mm. I mean, to start with, I mean, until they get the, you know, the, the United Kingdom. But don't forget the American aircraft. But uh, it's not it's not as if you got an invasion from the United States Air Force or the or the United States uh, uh, Airborne Navy. Um, the aircraft are the same as the ones that we're buying. And there'll be the guys will be RF fellows and also Navy guys will be flying them, which is what okay. they're doing at the moment and what they're doing in America. Well, and that is all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. Let us uh, tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS Sitrep. We're back this time next week from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Please do